Good morning, church. I think I expanded your horizons a little this morning with that hymn, and hope uh, you will see in a moment why I wanted us to learn that great old hymn, The God of Abraham Praise. We are returning to our series on the book of Amos. We're studying through these minor prophets, these smaller books at the end of the Old Testament. And you can find Amos on page 766 in the Bibles provided for you in the pews. 766. Don't be afraid to use the page numbers. They're tiny books in the end of the, end of the Old Testament. Let me remind you about Amos. Amos was a layman who was called by God to go and preach to the northern tribes called Israel, the ten tribes to the north, a little Old Testament history review, right after Solomon, because Solomon's heart was divided. He had one foot in the world, worshiping the world, and another foot trying to, in, in God's world, trying to worship God. And God said, because your heart is divided, it will result in the division of your country. It happens to organizations and even nations whose hearts are divided. I'm going to divide your country until you come back to me. They never did return to him in the north. The northern group of tribes was called Israel, the southern called Judah. And Amos was a citizen of Judah. He lived in the south. And he wasn't a trained professional clergyman. He was a farmer. He was a poor man. He was a shepherd. And he raised sycamore fig trees. That is, those, are the only, those were the only figs that poor people could, could afford. He was a poor, untrained man who worshiped the Lord. And because he was listening so carefully to the Lord, the Lord said, I want you, Amos, to go to the north to an enemy nation, and I want you to preach warnings against them. I want you to warn them that unless they repent of their lack of concern for the poor, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to take them away into captivity. Now, the northern tribes had had a period of peace. Assyria wasn't bothering them, which allowed their economy to thrive. They were making lots of money. Archaeologists have shown that, uh, that in the early days of the founding of Israel, the houses were all about the same size, but by Amos' day, those houses of the middle and upper classes were 25% larger, and the lower classes, the more impoverished people, became 25% smaller. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. And God said, I want you to preach against those people because they are not sharing. They're not living generously as I made them to live. They have forgotten my mercies and my grace of bringing them out of Egypt. They've forgotten my redemption. I want you to go and remind them of it, call them back to repentance, call them back to living in loyalty to me and in response to my grace so it should be manifested in their generosity. That's what this man Amos has gone to do. And Amos doesn't pull any punches. By chapter 4, as we begin reading, Amos strikes hard at this selfishness manifested by passivity toward those in need. We begin reading in verse 1 of Amos chapter 4. 
Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings, publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, a field on that on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold wonderful things in this portion of the good news, and that it would refresh us in our understanding of redemption. It would call some of us for the first time ever to bow the knee to Christ and receive his free offer of salvation and drive us all by the end of this message into a place of gratitude by which we will come to the Lord's Supper and eat and drink deeply in refreshing streams of mercy. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. John Wesley is the, known as the founder of Methodism, lived in the 1700s. And the man known for his piety, for his evangelism, for his brilliance in organizing in order to reach out, and a man who came to Christ, even after he was a minister, his heart was strangely warmed by the gospel as he heard it expressed and described in the book of Galatians. 
John Wesley said that the man he admired more than any other, the man who was the most important mentor to him in godliness, the most the most pious, the most godly, the most righteous man he had ever observed was someone named John Fletcher, the vicar of Madley. John Fletcher, Fletcher, the vicar of Madley. And he asked him on one occasion, a man in his 80s, what is it that explains your love for Christ, your passion for Christ, your service to all people? He was He was a servant-hearted man. What explains it? And Fletcher answered this way. I once saw that all my endeavors availed nothing. That is, I tried so hard to be good, to make myself worthy, to, to, to cause God to love me, to earn more credit with him. I saw that it all availed to nothing. I almost gave up hope, but then I remembered Christ died for all. Therefore, he must have died for me. He died for sinners like me, brands he snatched from the burning. I felt my helplessness lay at the feet of Christ. I cried coldly, yet I believe sincerely I said, Lord, save me from burning. Save me and pluck me as a brand out of the fire. Save me. Stretch forth your almighty arm and save me by your unmerited grace. That's what explains it. He didn't answer, it's because of my disciplined memorization of Scripture. It's, it's because I go to church as often as I can. It's not because I've, I've learned so much by reading my study Bible. All of those things would have been great helps to him. But the primary thing that drove along the life of John Fletcher and as an example to another, John Wesley, I never have forgotten that I was a brand, I was a stick destined to burn forever in the flames of hell. And God in his mercy, for no other reason than that he loved me, reached his hand in and plucked me out and saved me. I want, therefore, for the rest of my life to be used by him in response to that grace to expand his kingdom, to serve other people with the same grace There's no one too good for me, too poor for me to serve. I want in response to that grace to be used up by him. That's the explanation. You know, that phrase, uh, a brand snatched from the flame, comes from our text. If you didn't hear it, verse 11, you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. He says that to Israel. You were languishing in Egypt for 430 years. You were burning, alive, dehumanized, without hope. And I reached in and snatched you out and saved you. And you have forgotten it. What is the secret to to, to being released 
from that bondage to selfishness? What is the secret for doing what Lucy just challenged us to do, to take the spotlight off of yourself and start shining it on other needs to see where you might serve, where you might bring the life and joy and light of Christ. The secret is to begin with the gospel again. No matter how many times you've heard it, no matter how familiar it is to you, it is to go back and realize that the only reason you are here today, the only reason that if you are a Christian, you know him as your savior is that he, by his love, reached into the flame and plucked you out. It is to realize two things about God. He is a judge and he is a redeemer. And when you realize that he is a judge and he is a redeemer, your response will be a grateful servant. The old outline that the that the Puritans used to use for the, for the gospel is, it's guilt that drives to grace, which drives to gratitude. That's the old story. It begins with understanding that we are guilty before a God who is a judge. That's the emphasis of verses 1 to 11. Amos brings to the fore the sins of these people of Israel. He calls them out. And he hadn't been to seminary uh, enough to uh, learn how to make his uh, words a little more gentle. He just goes right for it and he exposes their sins. There's seven sins that he puts his finger on that are mentioned in verses 1 through 11. But we can put them all under two major heads. One is, and these are most of them, it is religiosity for show. It is just showing off and trying to get people's attention for how religious you are. And the second is a lack of concern for the poor. Religiosity for show and passivity in regard to the poor. They're not actively putting down the poor, they're just ignoring them. Religiosity for show. You notice these people are very churchy people. They go to church a lot, verses four and following. You, they bring all kinds, all the sacrifices. Bring your sacrifices, your tithes, your, your uh, the multiple tithes, sacrifices of, of thanksgiving and free will offerings and so forth. Uh, do that. Exacerbate your judgment in doing so because this is what you like. Verse five, you like to proclaim and publish them. That is, you like to boast and brag. As you do these things that, yes, are prescribed by Old Testament Scripture, you like to say, look at me. Look how great I am. What a good boy am I. Look at me. God says, you're not serving me with your heart in response to grace. You're taking these these precious things that I have delivered to you that are intended to remind you that you are brands snatched from the flame, that you are slaves rescued from Egypt, that you are people who are destined to hell and I've saved you. These are things that are supposed to remind you of the gospel and you've turned them in an, in an evil way. You have harnessed them in order to bring attention to yourself. You have forgotten my love for you and therefore you're not loving me. And because you're not loving me, you're not loving those around you. 
Now, as I said, uh, Amos hits this very hard and begins in verse 1 with this very unflattering address to the women of Israel, you cows of Bashan. It's not a pickup line, by the way, single men. Wouldn't do well for you to whisper this in your wife's ear, oh, you lovely cow of Bashan. Don't do that. This is not meant to be complimentary. Bashan is a fertile plain at the northeast, northeast of Israel, fed by the Yarmouk River, surrounded by mountains, is protected. It was protected. It was a place to raise cattle. The cattle didn't have to graze very far because the, the pasture land was so rich. And so these cows grew fat because the resources were brought to them. And he's saying, this is the way. Now, he's not just talking to the women, by the way. By verse 2, he's talking to the men too. It's a male pronoun. But it's an illustration of what the way these people are living. That is, because they want more and more and more, they're having to take it from those resources that could be shared with the less fortunate. The more they consume on themselves, the less they feel they have to give away. I can't afford to help those people. I have to add this toy to my collection. I can't afford to help those people. I don't have the time because I've filled up my time with all these things I'm doing for myself. I don't, I don't have, uh, I don't have uh, uh, the, the energy or the resources to help people find uh, a, a viable job because I've been adding so much to my own job because I need more in order to support my standard of living. Their increased consumption was the explanation for why they were not living generously. And because they were living that way, they had reduced themselves to brute beasts. You know, one of the most basic ways that we are made in the image of God is that he makes us givers. God is a giver. God so loved the world he gave. God created the world God gave the sun and the moon and the stars to give their light. He gave the flora and fauna of the creation to give to us. And so to, re- to reflect his image, to be an image bearer is to be a giver. To be a taker, to be a hoarder, to be selfish is to live like an animal. But it's so common that we don't look askance at people who are living selfishly. It would be like if we all came into this place today walking on fours, walking on our, on our hands and our knees, and we, we visit each other and like this, and then somebody comes along standing up on, as a biped, and they say, what are you doing? And all the people walking around on fours say, what are you doing? You're supposed to be down here like us. No, you are made to stand up straight and walk on two legs. Oh, no, this is the way everybody walks around. This is the way we are as a culture. Everybody's out for themselves. Everybody is consuming more. Everybody's working hard to get more. Everybody's filling up their time so much that they don't have time to invest in community or build relationships or have anyone in their home. Everybody does this. And then the gospel comes along 
And the person of Jesus comes along and says, God made you to be a giver. You wonder why you're so frustrated in life. You wonder why you're bitter. You wonder why you're depressed. You wonder why you're angry. You wonder why you don't have any friends. You wonder why you don't have any purpose in life. It's because you're not living as a human being. Who gives? You're not living as an image bearer of God who says, I have these things. They are given to me in order to look for someone who has not. It's to give. It's to be It's to look for those who are vulnerable, those who are at risk, those who are at need. And it's never to ask the question, now who around me is worthy of me helping? That's not gospel logic. Because God never treated us that way. God didn't say, I really love that world. I'll send my son to them when they deserve it. He sent before we deserve it. Why were we yet his enemies? To live in gospel logic is always to remember that I am a brand snatched from the flame. I deserved hell, and the only reason I'm not going to hell is God has saved me, and he has, he has given me to be a giver. Now, whom may I serve? That's what was lost in Israel. And so what happens when we don't live as those who are generous to those who are in need around us. Then God says these consequences are going to come. Now that you know that it is the most humanizing way to live, to be a giver, then you understand these consequences. There are seven consequences to the seven sins. And those, two, those, those seven consequences can be organized under two sets as well. They can be uh, organized under natural consequences and human consequences. Natural consequences for selfishness and human consequences for selfishness. When you don't live as a giver, the giver God has made you to be, not just giving your money, but giving your energy, your time, your prayers to those who are in need around the world. When you don't live that way, there are natural consequences. God says, look what's happened you are, you are hungry. That is, well, you say, I'm not hungry. I have plenty to eat. No, but you're constantly worried about who's going to provide for you. That's hunger. The, the, your, your land is not bearing the fruit that you, you wanted to. Everything is a trial. There's blight and mildew. There's rust and corruption The more you pursue selfishness, the greater frustration you are experiencing. Natural consequences. Why? Because God made the world to run on generosity. And then there are human consequences. People take your stuff away. Or you have friction in relationships. Or you are angry because uh, you are you're brooding over what you don't have or the, the, the stress that you have and it comes out sideways on others and it hurts your relationships. There are consequences to living, un, uh, to living selfishly. And those, yeah, yes, God ultimately brings them, but he brings them because he made his world to work in a different way. We're only reaping what we are sowing. 
It's not that God is so, so mean that he doesn't want us to enjoy anything, so he has to punish us when we're living selfishly. No, he says, you're, you're, you're experiencing the consequences of your inhuman, not to mention your ungrateful living. So you say, that, uh, that, those really are stern words by God. Oh, they're loving warnings. It's an invitation by God to come to life. It's an invitation to God to come into real living, into real responsibility that brings real dignity and brings real change and real fulfillment. You know, a long time ago, I was uh, preaching in a, at a very large college conference. You know, multiple colleges had come together and there were, there, were, there, was, there were Ivy League colleges together with technical colleges. It was a broad spectrum of people. And I was preaching along, and, and I felt led by the Spirit to preach on the fatherhood of God. And I said in passing that, that God, God is a, a good father. And as a good father, he calls us to responsible living because he wants life to go well with us. And he also is a good father who gives us real responsibility so that we have the dignity of being included, of participating in the work he is doing in the world. Now, I thought it was kind of a, a throwaway line. I just went by that very quickly. And after the message, I had a line of young men in particular lined up to talk to me. And the very first one in line came from one of those Ivy League colleges. He had tears coming down his face. And I thought, oh my goodness, this, this young man is really under conviction. I've, maybe, maybe it's really, that what, what I said was convicted him so much, he feels so guilty. But instead he came up and he said, I just wanna thank you, thank you for telling me that God is my father and he holds me responsible. I thought, that's odd. He holds me, he gives me responsibility. He said, do you know that my father will not trust me with any responsibility? He won't let me, he hasn't let me make my choice for my major because I have to be groomed in order to succeed into the company, the, 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 the family business. He won't let me make my choices on my classes. He, 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 he won't let me work a summer job because he doesn't think I can do it. He doesn't even let me drive home because he doesn't think that I'll make it safely. But you have told me that the God of all the universe calls himself my father and he gives me real responsibility and dignifies me by allowing me to participate in his work with him. That is the response. That's the response that Amos is looking for. Not a beat down response of saying, oh, I am so guilty. How shall I ever recover from this conviction? No, but rather, oh, I've wondered why I've been so miserable. It's because I'm not living as a child of God with real responsibility called to generosity. God is a judge, but a loving, fatherly judge who warns us so that life may go well with us. God is a redeemer. God is a redeemer. Verses 11 and 12. 
There are five phrases here describing God's work as a redeemer. Again, we can reduce them to two. God is a redeemer, redeems us from the past, he rescues us from the past, and he, he teaches us presently what we need to know. He redeems us of the past, he teaches us presently. This is old news to some of you who have been living the Christian life for a while, but it's worth remembering, verses 11, I overthrew some of you, and when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. And he describes other things that happened in the creation as a result of not walking with him. What he does, what God often does in Scripture, is to point around the creation And to say, as we know this well, Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. We're used to looking at the heavens, a beautiful day like today, and saying, oh, how glorious is God. But we're supposed to look at every part of creation and discern that God is a redeemer. Because there is nothing created. Let me say it positively. Everything that is created, God has used to redeem God parted water. God split the sky. God spoke through the stars. God caused the sun to stand still to bring victory. God brought water from a rock. God God shaded the people of Israel. He brought warmth to them with a pillar of fire at night. God brought a, a baby to a woman God touched people with mud and healed their eyes. He walked on water. He calmed seas. God has moved throughout redemptive history. God has moved heaven and earth to save his people. Everywhere you look, you not only see that God is there, everywhere you look in creation, you see that God has redeemed and is redeeming. In other words, there is no place that you can ever look in all of creation and forget that you are a brand snatched from the flame. Therefore, every place you look is an occasion to be grateful. And then secondly, he is the one who teaches us presently. You see this verse when he says, I have declared to you, verse 13, I declared to you what is man's thought. I have declared to you, or the prophet says, I have declared to you what God's thought is. Earlier in chapter 3, the prophet has said, God has not withheld anything from you. He has revealed everything that you need to know. I recently talked to a, a very religious man who is not a Christian. He knows his Bible well, and he looked at that passage. He was reflecting on that passage, and he said, do you really believe that's true? Do you really believe that God has told us everything that we need to know? I said, I do believe that. That's how good God is. He doesn't tell us everything we want to know. He doesn't tell us everything that we want to know when we want to know it. But he tells us everything we need to know so that life will go well with us as his children. There's reason for gratitude. You look at God as a judge, 
it'll convict you of your sin and your guilt. But it drives you to God as a redeemer, which should move you to grace, to realize he never has given us what we deserve. The third step is gratitude. And the first step to the third step is to come to this table. This is the table of Eucharistic sacrifice. That means it's a table of thanksgiving. We don't ask you to crawl to this table on your hands and knees. We don't ask you to come to this table with your head bowed down in guilt and shame. If you wouldn't trample each other, we'd say, run to this table. Come to this table. This is your opportunity to say in reflection on your guilt and his grace, I am so grateful. Now fill me up and refuel me to serve the least of these to the glory of God. That is the good news of the gospel. I'm going to ask you to turn in your bullet. I forgot to tell you about the hymn. I'm sorry. The God of Abraham prays. This is the reason we sang that hymn. Thomas Oliver, who wrote it, Thomas Oliver was a man who lived a different life from John Fletcher's. He wasn't a moral man. He was an immoral man. But he heard George Whitfield in the first great awakening preaching one day, and he realized that he was desperate. And he claimed that same passage. Whitfield was preaching on this same passage. You are a brand snatched from the flame. And Thomas Oliver asked for Christ to come into his heart and made him a man of great and distinctive sacrificial service. One day he was listening over here. He overheard a synagogue worshiping and he heard the tune that's in our bulletin. It's a Hebrew melody. And then later he read a medieval rabbi named Maimonides who had 13 benedictions And he took those 13 benedictions and he put them to that Hebrew melody and we get what we have in our bulletin. The God of Abraham prays. It's a hymn very much. A hymn very much that Amos would feel comfortable singing. And it reflects everything that Amos has been saying in our text. The God of Abraham prays who reigns enthroned above ancient of everlasting days and God of love.